a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to this CGTN special program, Preserving Biodiversity, Protecting the Earth, and Wang Guan in Beijing. The most critical conversation of the decade on biodiversity is soon coming to an end in Montreal, Canada. Will the 196 parties to the UN Convention on Biological Diversity be able to clinch an agreement to halt the loss of wildlife, build back a healthy ecosystem, and share natural resources equitably? As president of COP15, how has China contributed to protecting the earth that is our common home? First of all, let's watch a short video. All beings flourish when they live in harmony and receive nourishment from nature. This Chinese saying drives China's climate and biodiversity actions. As president of COP15, China has been pushing for the adoption of the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, a roadmap to stop biodiversity loss by 2030 and achieve recovery by 2050. The China Pavilion at Montreal reflects China's own efforts to do so. Its theme is a throwback to the first part of COP15 held in Kunming, China last year. At the Kunming Conference, President Xi Jinping pledged over 200 million US dollars to establish the Kunming Biodiversity Fund that will support biodiversity protection in developing countries. Another step is the creation of national parks. With unique natural landscapes, natural heritage, and biodiversity, they illustrate success stories in the conservation of endangered species, such as the giant panda, tigers, and snow leopards. Last but not least, the Belt and Road Initiative proposed by China in 2013 is now a green Belt and Road Initiative. The focus is not just on building infrastructure, but on reducing emissions and pollution while doing so, and protecting biodiversity. Now, for more discussions, I'm joined in Tamil Nadu, India, by Eric Soheim. He's the former United Nations Undersecretary General. Eric is also the convener of the BRI International Grain Coalition Advisory Committee. In Beijing, China, we have Joe Fei, Chief Program Officer of the Worldwide Fund for Nature China. And in Hong Kong, China, we have Stephanie Lowe, Executive Director at property development company Shui Onland. Welcome to this program, guys. Eric, so good to have you back with us on the Hub on CGTN. First of all, I want to ask you, what do you think is biodiversity? I mean, rather, um, why it matters to our average viewers watching this program? To me, biodiversity is just a more complicated way of saying nature. It is all about nature, our love for nature. And I see three main reasons why we need to protect nature. One is the moral one. How, how can we destroy this beautiful planet we should have been given? Second is the economic one. Nature is producing a lot of the products we need, say medicines. And third is the ecosystem. Everything depends on everything in nature. If you destroy something, it may affect something else. Say if you wipe out the bees, there will be no pollination, there will be no uh, flora. So uh, there are very, very strong economic and moral. And right, we know that the United Nations Biodiversity Conference is taking place in Montreal, Canada. Uh, what are your expectations? What could be the deliverables? I think they can build upon what happened in Kunming. In Kunming, there was uh, China set up a fund to finance uh, action on uh, protection of nature, which is good. But uh, let's take it further. I mean, there may also be a global agreement on more protection of nature coming from Montreal. But overall, I believe we should not put too much emphasis on diplomacy. At the end of the day, it's the political economy which counts. That is the decisions made by the main political leaders of the world and the main 
captains of business. For example, when President Lula was elected the president of Brazil last month, that has enormous implications for nature because he will turn around the deforestation of the Amazon and drastically reduce it. A couple of months before, Mr. Petro was elected the president of, of Colombia. That's another hotspot for nature. These have enormous implication uh, for, uh, for, for nature in the, in the entire world. And I could go on with examples of what political leaders in Asia, Europe and America are doing. So Eric, if the pandemic has taught us anything, that is mankind must respect nature and human society is a wholly owned subsidiary of nature, not the other way around. Uh, you have been very much involved in this field. Talk to us about the importance of protecting nature and biodiversity for the sake of sustainable development for humans. We need a more humble vision of humanity, and I think it's very much linked also to the Chinese concept of an ecological civilization. We need to see humans as a species in nature. We don't have the right to dominate everything, to wipe out all other species and, and destroy uh, the planet forever for future generations. How can that be our right? We are one species in nature. We should, we should act in a humble way and make sure that the planet is given to the next generation a better uh, situation than uh, we got it. And then, of course, we need to act in accordance with that. Uh, and I see a lot of reasons why political leaders are waking up all over the world. Many big businesses are taking great action to protect nature. And, of course, we need to create a citizens' movement because if people at heart are not sending the message to business and political leaders that they should protect nature, uh, it won't happen. But uh, we need to speak a simpler language, make it more positive, and tap into this uh, real passion for nature, which every person feels. Exactly. Um, we know that you're representing the BRIGC, and uh, the organization has published several reports on the biodiversity conservation situation. Uh, maybe you can shed light on how a green BRI could contribute to the post-2020 global biodiversity framework that has been finalized as we speak in Montreal. Absolutely, this uh, global coalition for Green Belt and Road has taken a lot of action to promote a Green Belt and Road. We have created a, a traffic light system for Chinese foreign investment, good for environment, green, bad for environment, red. And if it's yellow, maybe you can make some changes and take it in, into, a, into a better fashion. And I made a number of reports uh, about this. I see two main ways Belt and Road will contribute to a greener planet. One is, of course, Chinese investments. When President Xi last year said that China would stop all overseas investments in coal, that was the most important decision for the environment in the entire world in 2021. It was of enormous significance uh, because it will, it will face down coal, but of course it will also turn Chinese investments into solar and wind and green hydrogen and all the green energies uh, we need. And the second is people-to-people -people contact. Uh, and China has now so much to show for itself when it comes to the environment. Best practices in, in many ways. For instance, China is by far the biggest tree planter in the world. Planting in deserts, planting in cold areas, planting in rainforest in, uh, in Yunnan. It's a wide variety of this. President Xi has promised that uh, China will plant an area the size of Belgium every year from now to 2030, that, that, that's big, that's, that's amazing. Uh, and of course, Belt and Road is an opportunity through the Green Belt and Road Coalition to take this knowledge from China to the rest of the world. But vice versa, China may also 
learn something. Give you one example, when President Xi now went to Saudi Arabia, one part of the delivery from that visit was an agreement between China and Saudi Arabia that the best practice of the alien company in the Kobuchi desert of Inner Mongolia will now be taken to, to Saudi Arabia so that they can learn from the technologies and practice in Inner Mongolia in their fight to green the desert, the great deserts of, of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, hopefully uh, there can be renewed momentum of the Green BRI once the pandemic is fully behind us. Uh, we know that we're having a twofold crisis, biodiversity loss and its repercussions on climate change. How can they be tackled together? They need to be seen as one. I'm now in the southern Indian state of Tamil Nadu. And just two days ago, with the chief minister of the state, I launched Tamil Nadu's climate mission. And that's bringing both together. Tamil Nadu want to go very, very fast into wind, solar, hydrogen, all the green renewable energies. And it wants to protect its wetlands, its tiger reserves, its forest, everything, protect that better. And that brings together the, uh, the message of protecting the, 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 the forest and the, the greener of the planet and uh, climate. And maybe the most obvious example is the rainforest. To protect the rainforest, to protect the most complicated ecosystem on the planet where any number of species are located. But it's also an enormous carbon sink to protect the rainforest, to stop emissions uh, which are destroying the planet. So the policies which are go good for going green are normally also very good uh, for stop stopping climate change. So let's see this not at two separate tracks, but one and the same. And Belt and Road has an opportunity to provide technologies, investment, uh, and people-to-people's contact to make this happen in real, in real terms. Yeah, we know that next year will be the 10th anniversary of the inception of the Belt and Road Initiative that was proposed in 2013 by Chinese President Xi Jinping. How do you envision future BRI projects conforming to green and sustainable development? Because if we guess that um, not all countries and regions are on the same page when it comes to industrialization, when it comes to you know, the mindset shift to a sustainable solution. I think we all need to change into the view of China, but by the way, also India. And it's very interesting that President Xi of China, Prime Minister Modi of India, the two biggest developing nations, both have the same mindset to see going green as an opportunity. Yes, it's a problem with climate change for sure, but it's also an enormous opportunity to get more green industries, create more jobs, bring people out of poverty, create prosperity. And that's my vision for Belt and Road. Let's see this as an enormous opportunity for Chinese investment and Chinese best practice to well today's 130 nations which are, uh, are on Belt and Road. So this is a, the most important scheme uh, for investment in the world. In practical terms, this, this means like, I mean, China's just provided the railroad from Yunnan to Vientiane in Laos just providing the railroad from Bandung to Jakarta in Indonesia, Trans-Thailand Railroad, Trans-Malaysia Railroad, all these are now in the making. And in the past, of course, in Ethiopia and Kenya. Make sure that these railroads are green, that they're not destroying nature, that they're bypasses for, for animals. And then, of course, invest heavily in solar and wind and all the new technologies. And you saw after President Xi dropped in foreign investment in coal, uh, the Bangladeshis, the Pakistanis, the Kenyans all responded exactly the right way. They said, yes, we also don't want this invested any longer. 
we want to shift into the renewables. But of course, we want China to invest in solar and wind and green hydrogen back in our countries. And that's the opportunity of Belt and Road to provide this green investment and the green people to people's contact. Yeah, talking about uh, biodiversity conservation, during your many visits to China, you have visited uh, many biodiversity conservation model projects, such as the Sanhan Ba Forest Farm, and also we understand that you've been to Anji County in China, uh, which is a beautiful you know, water town uh, that I have the privilege of visiting as well. Uh, what is your takeaway from those trips? Yeah, I think Anji is fascinating because that was also very President Xi when he was the party secretary of Shan, long before he became the president. He launched the idea of lucid waters and lush mountains as the has an invaluable. It's exactly. like it's like mountains of silver, silver and gold. Simply, uh, green is gold, uh, and that idea is, I think is so powerful because in the past everyone saw environment as a problem. If you wanted to develop fast, you couldn't take too much interest in the environment. But now we have the opportunity to get this right to have all the policies in the spirit of presidency of making it green, but creating jobs and prosperity at the same time. So Angie, of course, it is inspiring because it was very, it made these comments in the first place, but it's also a place which has uh, applied it. They have, they have faced down some of the most polluted industries in Angie, and they made Angie also a hotspot for, for green tourism. But there's so many success stories now all over China, and I want to see more. Saihan Ba, where three generations in Hebei, three generations of Chinese apprentices, trees, so beautiful, in an extremely cold place, much colder than my home country, Norway, and mm -hmm. cold and dry, very difficult, but still I made it. And the giant panda national park, where you now see an increase in the number of giant pandas, which is fantastic. In the Western China, you see an increase in the number of snow leopards, which were seen as very threatened until very recently. So there are so many success stories, these come together, under the slogan of green is gold or beautiful China. And I want China to do even more of this, but I also want to take these ideas to help other countries achieve the same. Yeah, when it comes to biodiversity conservation and climate change, there has been uh, huge you know, promises and initiatives uh, at the top down. But when it comes to a local implementation, um, what, are, what would you identify as some of the challenges such as you know, bureaucratic path dependence, uh, local inertia, local inaction. And how can China, in your opinion, overcome those challenges? I think the most important challenge is also to have always to bring in the local people. Uh, sometimes you try to push something down on local people, it doesn't work. The Navas Minister of Environment of Norway opens eight national parks in our country. Every time I sat in long negotiations with the local farmers and the local people to make sure that you took their views into account. Didn't always agree, but at the end, there was the national parks became much stronger because of this local involvement. And that's also exactly the same President Lula now will do in Brazil. He will empower indigenous people of Brazil to protect the forest. They cannot protect the forest if the police and the army are not behind them. But when you have the indigenous people out in the forest protecting, the support of police and army is very, very powerful. In Rwanda, they have a fantastic success story on protecting gorillas, because they made such a fantastic economy for the local people, bringing income from tourism to the local people from the gorillas. So they are the first-rate protectors. I think the most important of all is to make sure that we always, always, always 
uh, work with the local people, those affected. You cannot expect a farmer to protect the elephant if that elephant in one day destroy his whatever he has done for the, for, for the last year. Then you need to find a practical solution to help the farmer to keep the elephant out of his farm, but still protect it. Eric Sohan, former United Nations Undersecretary General and convener of the Grain BRI project. Thank you so much for your time. Travel safe. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. We'll take a short break. Stay with us. Focus, focus on what's relevant in China and the world. Bridge the, bridge the gap between what you know and what you want to know. This is The Hub. Welcome back. We're going to continue our conversation on biodiversity and sustainable development. All right, so Mr. Joe, let me start with you. Uh, the WWF is supporting global efforts on biodiversity conservation, which is a very important issue at this point in age. Uh, what is the WWF's most notable work on biodiversity conservation and contribution as well to COP15? WWF is urging world leaders to secure an ambitious global agreement uh, to save our planet at the COP15 currently held in Montreal. WWF is pressing government to adopt a Paris-style agreement capable of driving immediate action to hold and re reverse biodiversity loss by 2030 for natural positive world. WWF stressed the importance of countries agreeing to a goal of conserving at least 30% of the planet's land inland waters and oceans by 2030. Now at the same time, action is needed to ensure the remaining 70% of the planet is sustainably managed and restored. Science is clear that the global production and consumption rates are completely unsustainable and are causing serious damage to the nature system people rely on for their livelihood and well-being. WWF believe a commitment to half the global footprint of production and consumption by 2030. Despite a large and growing number of world leaders committing to secure an ambitious global biodiversity agreement, key issues remain unsolved, including how to mobilize the necessary finance. Currently, the biodiversity finance gap is estimated to be 700 billion US dollars annually. Now, WWF is calling for countries to substantially increase finance, including international public finance with developing countries as the beneficiary and align public and private finance flows with nature positive practice. Sure. Uh, Stephanie, let me turn to you. When people talk about the real estate sector and infrastructure, sometimes people think about uh, you know, heavy emitters, uh, that is the real estate sector. But I know that Shui uh, Online, the company that you're working for, is committed to the Science-Based Targets Initiative, uh, which actually promotes best practices in emission reductions and net zero targets. Um, and also your company has a Green Pledge for Attendance Initiative. Um, can you perhaps talk to us about some of those best practices and also lessons, if, if, if any, that you have learned along the way? Yes, thank you so much uh, for that question. I think green cities are really critical to realizing our net zero goals, and that's why we were the first China-based developer to commit to the SBTI. Um, according to a report, studies show that urban area only accounts for about 1% of the world's total land area, but over 50 
5% of the population actually lives in urban locations. And cities account for about 70% of the carbon emissions globally. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, the building construction sector definitely is a big emitter. It accounts for just under 40% of the global emissions worldwide. So we definitely have a very big role to play um, if we are um, going to meet uh, the net zero targets um, that many cities and countries have laid out. Um, so sustainability has always been very fundamental to how we develop and how, how we think about our projects. Um, we're the developer behind Shanghai Xintiandi, um, which is a large-scale master plan, live, work, play, learn community. It's, you know, 23 city blocks, about 52 hectares in size. Um, we're best known for the actual um, culturally preserved district, which is centered around the first Communist Party meeting place. Yeah. But what most people don't realize is that it's actually part of a very large scale master plan and that we're, it was done based on principles of sustainability, um, being pedestrian friendly, human centric. It's um, celebrating and preserving local cultural heritage. And what's right in the center of the entire master plan that holds everything together is actually a green park. And that is right in the center of the district. And that park really has greatly enhanced the livability uh, and the overall value of that district uh, over the uh, long term. And so we're very happy to share that actually um, the overall Shanghai Xinyandi district was awarded the first well community globally. Mm -hmm. um, and this takes into consideration not just the hardware aspects of developing, um, you know, a green city, but actually the social aspects of well, as well of building community. So you know, it's very clear the climate crisis is very clearly tied to the nature crisis. And so I believe there's a lot more room in the urban context to continue to make meaningful progress, um, to rethink how communities are developed and how nature can play um, a much more central role in them in the long term. Yeah, definitely. Uh, meaningful progress is necessary uh, in cities, in particular, when it comes to uh, nature conservation and developing uh, sustainable solutions. Uh, Mr. Zhou, what is the priority areas of WWF China currently, uh, projects that you have been engaged in. What are you working on with stakeholders in China to combat biodiversity and nature loss? Yeah, over the past few years, WWF has been uh, collaborating with the partners in China on biodiversity conservation. Uh, we supported China uh, ban the legal every trade in 2017 and reaffirmed the ban of uh, trade of tiger bones and rhino holes in 2018. Now, these measures help to uh, protect endangered wildlife, such as elephants, tigers, and rhinos. Uh, we, also help, um, we also have conservation projects in Sichuan province to protect giant panda uh, and uh, snow leopard, uh, in Northeast China to protect tigers, and also in Hubei province to protect river dolphin. Now the giant panda, for instance, being downgraded by IUCN in 2016 from endangered to vulnerable following a 70% increase in population size between 2004 and 2014. Now this is one of the best example that several endangered species has been recovered in China. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, those endangered species are, are definitely uh, playing a huge role when it comes to biodiversity, uh, you know, the, the integrity of uh, a biological chain that is crucial for nature. Stephanie, you know, Shui on Land has a deep grain lease program. That sounds very interesting. Uh, basically, it is about tenants getting financial incentives to promote energy savings. 
Um, how is that program received by tenants? Are they enthusiastic about it? Maybe you can talk to us about the challenges and also opportunities that this program has offered. Yes, um, actually, the way that we see sustainability, it can't be a zero-sum game. We have to find a win-win solution. And um, sustainable development should not come at the expense, or economic development should not come at the expense of sustainable development. And that's why um, community is really at the core of our sustainability strategy. And community, um, by definition, should be engaging all of our stakeholders. And that would be much more powerful to the cities that we actually operate in um, over the long term. So um, you asked asked about signing a deep green lease with our tenants. This is actually one initiative that we're undertaking this year, um, specifically towards our office tenants. Um, we piloted what we call a deep green lease, which is transferring some financial incentives um, to the actual tenancies that allow them to benefit from cost savings and energy reduction that they're directly um, controlling. And for us as a landlord, it also re reduces our energy consumption overall. So not only is it it's a win-win win. Win for all, including um, you know, the environment and the city. And uh, so we want to continue to roll out these types of green leases and green pledges. Um, last year, we actually signed uh, green pledges with all of our F&B tenants. We signed it with over 600 tenants across our portfolio in China. Um, and that actually um, pledges to operate uh, and develop uh, their restaurant outlets in a, in a green manner. Um, and part of the initiative was actually rolling out a green menu at every single restaurant across Xinjiang. Uh, that allows the consumers to be able to eat green and have that optionality and that choice um, when they come to Xinjiang. All right, Stephanie Lowe, Executive Director at property development company Xiong Land. And also, Mr. Joe Fei, Chief Program Officer of Worldwide Fund for Nature. Thank you both so very much. Dunhuang. Situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Loved Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on the major podcast platforms. Why We Loved Dunhuang? You will have your answers.